The first thing is when we talk about the legacy of Martin Luther, what is the sort of thing that he would say? Well, you can see a quote by him up uh, behind me. Uh, I did nothing. The word did everything. That's typically Martin Luther there, his total trust in the word of God and that it was God. If he did anything, if he achieved anything, then it was God working through him and especially the word itself uh, working. I don't think he would realize that day when he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door that within 500 years, there would be one billion Protestants on the earth today. One billion. There's 7.5 billion uh, people on the, on the earth today, so that's almost one-seventh of the current population have been impacted from these 95 theses. We're going to look at some of the things that were very uh, important to Martin Luther and, and how they had the knock-on effects in life and society. And so the first one here is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Uh, you heard during the presentation earlier that uh, Martin Luther, he, he said that the most important thing was what scripture said, not what the Pope said or any councils or tradition, but what did the Bible say? Luther saw that the scriptures were infallible, inerrant, and the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Therefore, any belief, practice, or traditions in the church was subject to the rule of the word of God. He also understood that scripture was clear, especially on the central teachings of the Christian faith. Here's a quote. A simple layman armed with the scriptures, is superior to both Pope and his councils without them. That's an incredible thing for Luther to say in the context that he lived in, where the Pope was seen as the vicar of, of Christ on earth. In other words, the Pope was the full represent, representative of Jesus on the earth. And we had all these bishops and cardinals and traditions. And now here Luther is saying, hey, a simple person with a Bible is superior to both Pope and his councils who, are, who would make decisions and theologies without them. This meant to Luther that the important thing was to get the word of God into the hands of as many people as possible. He didn't see the Bible as a dark, mysterious, obscure book that was dangerously open to misinterpretation by the reader. And that, that's what the church was saying. We can't let the normal people read these scriptures. They'll misunderstand what they say. They'll give the wrong interpretation on it. They should leave such things to us. But Luther didn't see the word of God like that. He believed that the word of God was crystal clear on the central teachings of the Christian faith and that anybody who read it with the help of the Holy Spirit would see its clear teaching. In fact, the more that we could get the scriptures out, then the more the truth of God would impact people's lives and change their lives. 
And that's why uh, you heard, you, you saw in the presentation uh, earlier uh, that Luther was kidnapped and he was taken to Wartburg Castle in 1522. And during that time of hiding, that's when he translated for the first time uh, the original Greek of the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek and translated it from the Greek into the German language. Then later on, about 10 years later, in 1534, he, working with some of his other colleagues, translated the whole of the Bible into the German language. Many of his tracts and his treaties and his little books, he would now uh, write them, not in Latin, which was the language of the universities and, and the clerics and the bishops, but he now put these things in the common language. With the printing press and its power, so many more people could now get hold of the Bible, the New Testament, uh, the teaching are, are from the New Testament in his tracts and treaties, and they could read it for themselves. They could read it in their own homes. They, once they'd read it, they could pass it on to other people. And so people became avid readers. And they were amazed that, that somebody could, could give them the New Testament. It's hard for us to understand that today when so many of us have Bibles in our houses, access to New Testaments online. You can go to Scripture, as Dr. Kendall last, last night said. In these days, they didn't have access to the Bible to read uh, in those days. But in these days, we have so much of the Bible, but not many of us read it. And so there was an emphasis here on reading and reading the word and putting the word into direct contact with individuals. And this, this was a very strong theme throughout Protestantism, throughout the last 500 years. This emphasis on knowing how to read as a crucial part of literacy and learning to read was at the heart of, of many Protestant missions. Not just learning to read anything, but learning to read so that primarily you could read for yourself the scriptures. And then, yes, you could have an education in, in other areas. You see behind me a, a picture there in the Industrial Revolution. When that came in the 1800s uh, to Great Britain and um, many of the young children, they were, they were treated no better than, than animals and, and, and no education at all. And so many of the Bible-believing Christians began what would be called Sunday schools. And this was an education that the, that the only time that these children, many of them working in the factories, could get near to the Word of God. And they taught them to read. And they taught them their numbers. But the main thing was, as they taught them to read, they taught them to read the Scriptures. Protestant missionaries uh, who went out all over the world nearly always carried with them an educational program. Like Luther, they wanted, wherever they went, the people of whatever language to be able to come into contact personally with the Scriptures themselves and have direct impact from the Scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You may have heard of the man called William Carey, who's called the father of modern missions. Not only was he the father of modern missions, but he's also known as the father of the Indian Renaissance. 
Because he went out there to preach the gospel, but also he wanted people to read the Bible and study the Bible in their own language. So he organized a Bengali literary language out of the many, many different dialects, dialects that were there. He studied them all and he brought them under one umbrella, not only so that people could read the Bible, but now they had a language of education that changed the face of that nation. There was also out of this a new spirit of inquiry. It was like, well, go read for yourself. Uh, when, the Bible, when we get you to get your Bibles out on Sundays and we say, turn to the scriptures and we have the public reading of scriptures. Or when we preach to you, we, 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 we tell you what the Bible says, but we, we also tell you where it said it so that you yourself can take your own personal Bible and check it out for yourself. Truth became divorced from political power. Before the scriptures were translated and, and disseminated to the people as wide as possible, you had to, you had to take your priest's opinion uh, at his word. There was no option to question because you didn't have the tools to question it. Luther and his opening of the Bible to all he also opened the marketplace of ideas. People could read the scripture for themselves and say, hey, hey, uh, this, this is what this, this, this means to me. I'm seeing something here. They could discuss the scriptures together. We know about Bible studies, Protestant Bible studies, where people will get together and they will read the Bible and learn the Bible together and, and discuss it together. So Bible translation to this very day into every language in the world is still a major part of uh, Protestant belief. Uh, up there in the screen, you can see there Wycliffe Bible translators. And if you go on their website, you see on their homepage, they say this, Wycliffe Bible translators, the Bible is for everyone. We want everyone to hear God speak to them as they engage with the Bible in their own language. 1.5 billion are still waiting for a Bible in the language that they understand well. It's not right that some of us have free access to the whole of the Bible while others don't. Together we can change this. <laughs> it's almost out of the mouth of Luther, isn't it? And then uh, Greg mentioned earlier on about and took a photo in his hotel room when he uh, opened the drawer of the Gideon Bible. And there we have the Gideons International, and we have some uh, key Gideons that are members of Kensington Temple. And you know, uh, if you know anything about them, how they want to get the Bible out into all the places they can, and how wonderful it is when you can go into a hotel and you can open that drawer, and there's that Bible, and there at the end of it. I remember when I was, I remember the first Bible I was ever given was a Gideon New Testament. Testament, a little red one. I've still got it when I was at school. And uh, I, I'd never looked at the Bible and I had this New Testament and I got it. And the most helpful thing as a little boy, I must have been about seven at the time, is I went to the back of the Gideon Bible and it said, in times of problems, in times of fear, go to these scriptures. And so I read that and I used it. I would go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit scared. So I'd go to my Gideon Bible and I'd look back and say, in times of fear, and I would find, find those scriptures. All of this is, is the legacy of Luther. Also, higher education. 
Luther studied the Bible in the original languages so well that he could translate them into German. The Reformation that came from Luther was primarily theologically driven. It came out of the university. It came out of Wittenberg. It came out of studying the word in its original language and then applying it to the church scenario that, that, they, that they were in. Uh, he was, Luther's Reformation was primarily driven by theology, whereas the Swiss Reformation with Zwingli, to begin with, was primarily driven by changing morals and church practice. Now, this is important to say because Luther's movement, his Reformation, was a university movement. And uh, here we have uh, Harvard, that great university in America. And I'm using them as an example. You've heard of Harvard. You've heard of Yale. You've heard of Princeton. Top universities in the United States of America. And all of them were originally, originally established to train pastors. You think about that. We also find that in England, as the, the Reformation grew, key places like Oxford and Cambridge would be places where people uh, discussed and debated and, 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 and looked at the scriptures. Theology became known as the queen of sciences. The queen of sciences, meaning that whatever other uh, subject you studied at university, you could only really understand it if you understood the God who was in charge of everything else that we studied. Also, preaching. There we go. Preaching was very important to Luther because not only did he want to give out the scriptures, but he wanted to explain the scriptures to the common people. So preaching became very central at that time. And preaching in the language that the common people could understand. Uh, it wasn't in many of the church services. Well, most of the church services were uh, done in Latin, the Latin mass. But now here's Luther and he's preaching and exhorting and explaining scripture to whoever would attend the meeting. Now, you can see in this quote that I put up here, uh, he said, in the pulpit, we are to lay bare the breasts and nourish the people with milk, you know, the spiritual milk of Corinthians. Complicated thoughts and issues we should discuss in private with the eggheads. Well, Luther was a, was a clever man, as I've said. He believed in, in, in studying. Uh, to, to go on on that quote, he says, complicated thoughts and issues we should discuss in private with the eggheads. I don't think that Dr. Pomeranius or Philip, I don't think of Dr. Pomeranius or Philip Melanthon in my sermons. They were very clever teachers. They know more about it than I do. So I don't preach to them, I just preach to Hansi and Betsy. So he wanted to get the word of God and the understanding of the word of God in a form that was simple enough for people to understand. But at the same time, he was studying the Greek, he was studying the Hebrew, he was a theologian of theologians, but he knew that when he came before the people, he needed to give them the word in a way that they could understand. One of the greatest theologians the world has ever seen, but he wanted to make sure that Hansi and Betsy understood what he was saying. Interestingly uh, enough, 
uh, Luther actually struggled with the preaching ministry. You'd think he'd have loved to have spoken the word all the time. But he, he, he was known to become very discouraged in his preaching ministry. In 1528, he warned the congregation at the Castle Church that he would stop preaching unless he saw much more fruit of the gospel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a preacher at your local church saying, I'm fed up of preaching to you because I'm not seeing enough change. And if you don't start taking the preaching serious, then I'm going to stop. He declared that if he had known in advance what a miserable calling preaching was, 24 horses would not be enough to draw him into it. Preaching, he said, was hard work. Quote, a rotten office whose misery is such that a person would rather be a pig farmer. In his New Year's sermon of 1530, he complained about the selfish attitude of the congregation and said to them, I would rather speak to raving dogs than you, and that from now on I will confine my teaching to the classroom. And he did. They didn't see him in a pulpit till September that year. And then when he came back, there was no apology, no reference to the fact that he'd called them dogs and that he wouldn't preach to them again. He just resumed his preaching and then averaged 180 sermons a year. So, sola scriptura, back to the Bible at the heart of Luther. Well, as you have been hearing, at the heart of Luther's reformation is also by faith alone, sola fide. And uh, I've quoted from a, a historian here, uh, for medieval theologians, the present life remained an anxious pilgrimage. Man lived in unresolved suspense, fearing damnation and hoping for salvation, ever, need, ever in need of confession and indulgence, discipline and consolation, saintly intercession, and the self-help of good works. You saw a little bit of it in the play, but can you imagine what it must have been like to live in this type of context? Your whole life an anxious pilgrimage, unresolved suspense, fearing damnation, hoping for salvation, but probably realizing that you won't, going, you won't be going to get it. Think in that play, you saw Tetzel, didn't you? And he was saying, look, just give me some money and grandma will get a few years off in purgatory. And, and, and people were thinking, well, you know, this is real. They were thinking, you know, my grandma is in purgatory suffering and, and maybe there's something I can do to help her. Uh, you, you know, imagine if this was happening in London and you thought, oh, I think we'll go to the theatre this evening. And your wife or husband said, well, wouldn't it be better to use the money to get a few years off auntie so-and-so in purgatory and to actually believe that? And peasants were going without food in order to give money to get their sins forgiven. Imagine the whole of your life, every day, dominated by, I don't know if I'm going to get into heaven. Every, your whole life would be dominated by, how am I going to get saved? 
You saw Luther was like that. They thought, well, what's the best way to get saved? They thought, well, the best way to get saved is to do as many good works as you can. And, and the people that do them the most good works, well, they're monks. And that's why when Luther had that near-death experience, that he, he realized, well, the logical thing is, is to be a monk. Because to be a monk or a nun is, is probably the best way of trying to get to heaven. This is a quote by famous evangelical uh, Jay Packer. And he said, Martin Luther described the doctrine of justification by faith as the article of faith that decides whether the church is standing or falling. By this he meant that when this doctrine is understood, believed and preached, as it was in the New Testament time, the church stands in the grace of God and is alive. But where it is neglected, overlaid or denied, the church falls from grace and its life drains away, leaving it in the state of darkness and death. Justification by faith alone. The only work that will ever get us into heaven was done by Jesus himself on the cross. And to trust in what Jesus did to get us to, to heaven is at the heart of justification. You see, justification is all about trusting in Jesus and what he did for us. Do you know that everything that Jesus did, he did for you? He didn't just die for you. You know, he lived for you. He obeyed the law for you. He obeyed and was faithful to his father for you. He died for you and he rose for you. And he ascended into heaven for you. This is a righteousness that's not our own. It's the Lord's. And we put our trust not in ourselves or our own good works or lack of them. But we put our, our trust in something external or should I say someone external. We put our trust in Jesus. It's an external righteousness, an external locus of control. That's what I was speaking about on Sunday. It's all about him. We put our trust in him. We're justified by faith alone, faith in Jesus. Well, that's an incredible, if you're living your life trying to get into heaven every day and you're buying indulgences or you're going to the mass and you're, and you're doing the sacraments and you're going on pilgrimage and penances and prayers and all these things you're doing to try and get saved. It's dominating your life. You're going to the priest and you have to confess and it's the priest that gives you absolution of, of sins. What a dominating situation to be in. And then someone, someone turns all of that on its head and says, just trust Jesus. Well, what about penance? Just trust Jesus. Well, what about the Mass and the sacraments? Just trust Jesus. Well, what about pilgrimages? Just tr trust Jesus. What about giving for indulgences? Just trust Jesus. What, just trust Jesus? Yes. What, and I'll be saved? Yes. What, and I don't have to do all these things? No, he's done it all for you. The liberation, not just spiritually, but all of a sudden, your, 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 your life is free. You can say, well, what am I going to do with my life? No more pilgrimages, no more mass every day, no more confessions. What, are, what am I going to do? Well, now you live your life by saying thank you. I can't believe it. I'm trying to get to heaven by being a monk, trying to get to heaven by doing all these things. And now I realize that Jesus died for me. And I'm saved. I'm saved eternally. Well, what shall I do with my life? 
It'll become one big thank you to the Lord. Now, with this knowledge that the just shall live by faith, now the idea is not to do all the work on these penances and everything, but now the idea is to get the message out. The gospel, the good news, mission, a focus on conversion experiences. We're Protestant, and this is where we get this word evangelical, and I got the Oxford Dictionary there, and this is what they say, of, of or denoting a tradition within Protestant Christianity, emphasizing the authority of the Bible, personal conversion, and the doctrine of salvation by faith in the atonement. And here we have, here's the legacy, preaching the gospel. In all its different forms, Reinhard Bonnke preaching the gospel with signs following, sharing on the streets. And there is uh, uh, John Wesley preaching the gospel there too. And it's interesting, RT mentioned about John Wesley. And this gospel, the gospel of justification by faith, can be very easily lost. I mean, John Wesley wasn't always out there preaching the gospel. He was a missionary before he was even saved. Before he, was, he even knew about justification by faith and applied it to his heart. He was going out to, say, to save people. He didn't, he didn't know what he was doing. And yet, yet there was only a couple of hundred years after Luther. And here's a man highly educated and he's lost the understanding of justification by, by faith alone. But then, one evening, it says, he says in his diaries, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Just Luther's introduction to his Romans commentary. About a, a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. An assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This idea that you didn't need a priest to be justified before God, you could go direct to God through Jesus. It was a great equaling and... Uh, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Everybody was equal before the cross. It was amazing for them to think when they thought of the hierarchy of the church, the hierarchy of society. And now, whether you were a prince in, in the castle or a beggar on the street, you could all know God in the same way. And this, this idea of equality has been working through history, and it's come from the gospel. The gospel is the great leveler. Luther said this, The article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly because of the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart. In other words, we need to keep preaching the gospel, not just to sinners, but to ourselves, and keep renewing it in our lives. The priesthood of all believers. Here's a quote. 
A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work of his office and his trade. Yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. And every one, by means of his own work or office, must benefit and serve every other. That in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. This radical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers coming from such passages as 1 Peter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans and chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Luther said, this word priest should become as common as the word Christian because all Christians are priests. This is very powerful. It's what we call the double calling. And uh, the first calling is to come to Jesus, to be justified by faith. But then there's a second calling. Now that you're justified by faith, what are you to do? Well, you're to express your Christian faith in specific areas of life, your vocation. Now, in Luther's day, before the Reformation came place, there was a big divide between what they called the secular and the spiritual. And the only calling that was really properly recognized, the calling of God, was the call to the priesthood or the call to the monastery or the call to the nunnery. But when Luther declared that everybody was priests and everybody could, could access God for themselves through faith... He also believed that everybody was also called of God. And so we're not only called to God, but then we're called to live out our relationship with God in the different areas of our lives. And Luther had what he called the four estates of service. And so your service to the Lord was in the church. You could be called to be a minister or a preacher or an elder in the church. But also, and equally as valid, you had a calling to serve God in your family, in your household. Luther said this, he said, all fathers and mothers who regulate their households wisely and bring up their children to the service of God are engaged in pure holiness, in a holy work and a holy order. Similarly, when children and servants show their obedience to their elders and masters, here is pure holiness, and whoever is thus engaged is a living saint on earth. Family and work was inconnected in serving God. Hoikonomia, hoikonomia, the Greek word for household, or the management of the resources of the household, hoikonomia is where we get the, the word economy. Luther said about housework, although it had no obvious appearance of holiness, yet these household chores are to be more valued than all the work of monks and nuns. 
So whatever area you were in the marketplace, uh, he, he called whatever work that God has given to you as masks of God. Your vocation, your calling, whether it be into medicine or, or whether it be in farming or, or whether it be in transport. Whatever area is a vocation that God has placed you and wants you to serve him as a priest. Luther called the masks of God because behind our parents that care for us is the God that cares for us. Behind the farmers that provide our food is the God that provides our food. Behind the doctors that heal us, it's God that heals us. Behind the government that protects us, it's God protecting them, especially if they live in a Christian manner. So the church, the household, uh, the economy, this is where we also get the idea of a Protestant work ethic. People began to take their faith into their workplace because that's where they were to be a priest. And uh, I haven't got time to go into the, into the whole uh, belief of the Protestant work ethic, but let me give you an example of the Quakers. If you've got your Luther pack, you've got my book on British revivals through the ages, and the chapter on the Quakers. And the Quakers were Protestant and Bible believers, and they, and they took this priesthood of all believers into their workplace. The Quakers were hardcore Christians, and they believed in the priesthood of all believers and the equality of the gospel, and, and they, they turned society upside down. And, and they, they, people found them very rude, because in those days you were meant to take your hat off when you met someone as you were walking down the road as a, as a sign of deference, or if you're in a court, you would take your hat off. And the Quakers refused to do that to anybody. They would refuse to bow in the presence of royalty. Why? Because they knew that we're all priests and um, we're all equal. They got that from the gospel. But also, in their workplace, they had very strong Bible ethics. They did their work as unto the Lord. And although people found them infuriating, always preaching the gospel and, and refusing to take their hats off, very soon they realized that the Quakers would give you a fair deal in whatever business that they were doing because they were doing it unto the Lord. So very soon people would go into villages and towns and they wouldn't just ask for the shoemaker. They'd say, is there a Quaker shoemaker around? They would ask for the Quaker businesses, knowing that they might get the gospel preached at them, but they would get a good and fair deal. It wasn't long before people, business communities, were complaining that the Quakers were taking over the business life of England because of their fair and Christian dealings. Just out of interest, some of the uh, uh, modern day, um, which, which were rooted in, rooted in the Quakers, are Clark Shoes. Lloyd's and Barclay Banking and Cadbury's Fries and Roundtrees all came from the Quakers when they wanted to deal with the rampant alcoholism by provide, providing chocolate drink in, instead. And then the state, government, society, culture and citizenship. God was involved in every aspect. You were to be a Christian citizen. Uh, society, culture, nothing was beyond God's redeeming power. And then finally, the common order of Christian love, Luther said. He said, although we have these three institutions, uh, the church, the household and the state, but also the common order of Christian love is in which one serves not only these orders, but serves every person that's in need, feeding the hungry, forgiving your enemies, praying for all men on earth. And then finally, I, ju I just thought, and there's others, but I just thought, finally, I would choose music. Luther.
Luther loved music, and there's a picture of him with his family, uh, and he's got his lyre. He used to play the lyre, and there they are uh, playing one of Matt Redman's new worship songs, <laughs> no, no doubt. He loved to sing. And out of all the major reformers, Luther was most prominent in his valuing of the arts. He said, here it must suffice to discuss the benefit of the great art. But even that transcends the greatest eloquence of the eloquence because of the infinite variety of its forms and benefits. He's talking about music. We can mention only one point, namely that next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. His view of church music has been described as proclamation and ministry. Music was to bring the church members into a deeper understanding of God and his word. I'm not sure what he'd have thought of songs which go, oh, heaven is in my heart. For him, it was a way of proclaiming the word of God. And he composed and encouraged songs to be written that were doctrinally suitable, but also appropriate and engaging for congregations. To Luther, music was an emotional force serving to turn people's hearts to the gospel. He says this, experience testifies that after the word of God, music alone deserves to be celebrated as mistress and queen of the emotions of the human heart. And by these emotions, men are controlled and often swept away as by their lords. For if you want to revive the sad, startle the jovial, encourage the despairing, humble the conceited, pacify the raving, mollify the hate-filled, what can you find that is more effective than music? Chorals were often derived from community songs that, that were loved. Lutheran children... In the churches were encouraged to learn the art of music, and music was used in the teaching of Christian truths to the children. He said this, I, am I, I firmly believe, nor am I ashamed to assert, that next to theology, no art is equal to music, for it's the only one, except theology, which is able to give a quiet and happy mind." This tradition of worship and doctrine through music uh, went right throughout the, the Lutheran church and, uh, and culminated in, you've probably heard of him, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. His most famous hymn that Luther penned was called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Well, I hope... That just uh, brings a little bit of interest to, to you as you've seen the figure of Luther portrayed to you in the Salt Mine Theatre production. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a feel of, of his impact and just, just a flavour really. These are just flavours of the impact of the man uh, and the Reformation. Behind me are two books that I recommend to you. A lot of, what, uh, of the good stuff that I got uh, in this presentation comes from The Legacy of Luther by, uh, edited by R.C. Sproul and we've been also mentioning a great overview of the Reformation. Very easy to to read as well Alistair McGrath's Reformation Thought. Well, let's end in prayer.